0: Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzevin, and I'm joined on this episode by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Hi, Dan.
1: What's up, Miriam? What is the Braha for the return of Shtisel? I'm going to need to learn it because season three dropped on Netflix, and it has been nothing short of a religious experience for me. Before we dive in, consider yourself warned this episode will utterly and completely spoil the season. If you haven't watched it yet and plan to, bookmark this pod and we'll be there for you when you're ready.
0: So joining us on this episode to unpack Everything That Happened in Season 3 is friend of the pod, Dr. Shayna Weiss. Dr. Weiss is the Associate Director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies at Brandeis University and the expert we turn to when we need to discuss anything related to Israeli pop culture. She's the definitive schtissel expert. Shayna, thank you so much for joining us today to help us emotionally cope with schtissel Season 3.
2: Thank you. I'm honored to be here and honored to achieve friend of the pod status.
0: It is highly coveted. Yeah. So it's really hard to wrap my mind around this, but season two, back in the dawn of time, aired in 2016. A lot of life has happened for us and the characters since then. Let's start with perhaps the most obvious question. How did they film this during the pandemic?
2: The most important thing to realize is that Israel, as we know, vaccinated its population way ahead of everyone else. So they were able to resume filming with really strict pods and processing way before sort of, let's say, the American industry was able to. But it does mean that production was limited. I have not received confirmation of this, but I suspect that may be why the season is a little bit shorter. I have also heard murmurings that the reason why there's not as many sort of group scenes is because of the Schistel cast, right? And there's a large cast, ensemble cast, if you think of all the kids or all the grandkids, that because of the pods work, they weren't able to do some of the large filming that they were able to do otherwise.
1: So let's let's kind of dive into this season. When the show first came to the States, we heard stories about how street scenes were filmed in ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods secretly so that residents wouldn't get angry. And that to me seems appropriate because it felt like that first season that that there was something voyeuristic about this show and this look at ultra orthodox life. That, and I felt myself othering when I was watching this, like, oh, these people are nothing like me, and and you know they're my people now. Uh, and I've noticed this by the end of watching the season; these are my people. You know, I used to notice how they prayed before every bite and touched the mezuzah before they entered a room, and and what they wore to bed, and how a man and woman who weren't married, if they were having a conversation, they leave the door open a little bit. Now that's just part of who they are, and I I don't see that as much, I'm much more focused on what's what's happening in the plot. How has the show evolved as we have come to know the characters, and we're now uh, almost 30 episodes into it?
2: Yeah, so I think if we think about the sort of heart of the show and the point of the show is that... It's a family drama. It's a human drama. The fact that the Haredi is obviously relevant. But to quote my favorite quote about Schtissel from Doug Glickman, who plays Shulam, in an interview, he said, they asked him his inspiration. And he said, uh, Schtissel is like the Sopranos, except instead of violence, there's challenge, right? It's a family drama. It's a drama of success, succession love, et cetera. And obviously he's being funny because he's funny, but I actually think there's something really deep there. So yes, there is some voyeurism in the way there is with any other sort of show, but unlike other shows, perhaps maybe unorthodox, where the point is to gawk a bit, here the point is not to gawk. So if you're not familiar with it, it of course seems weird or different, but very quickly you realize that they're just like you. And I think that's very much the point of a show like this.
0: Our characters are navigating... So much trauma and heartbreak, and nowhere is that more immediately evident than in the very first episode. And I know when this episode hit, Twitter was like, oh, my God. So let's talk about that mind-blowing reveal. So throughout the first episode, we see Akiva and his wife, Libby. Interacting, we see him painting her at the kitchen table, talking about rent, talking about when to get their daughter Dvorla when she cries. We, the audience, see them in the back of a cab going to Akiva's new art reception. But at that reception, at the very end of the first episode, we learn that the eighteen paintings that he's showing, and the eighteen number is not lost on me in that symbolism are of his deceased wife. Libby has died eight months prior to this, shortly after Devorla, their daughter, was born. And it's just like, so every scene we had seen of Akiva and Libby was entirely in his mind. Akiva can't bring himself to let go of these paintings, and now we understand why. They're the last remnants he thinks he has of his late wife, and he's horrified to discover that actually someone has purchased... Three of the best paintings, including one, oh my God, it, it was a painting of Libby in her wedding dress the, the night they got married. Uh, and I feel it was the second loss of Libby that triggers Akiva going down for a while, a, a self-destructive path. How do you feel about this plot twist and the way the show handled this huge reveal?
2: Dan, you asked about the development of the characters. And of course, this is the thing that steps the development of Akiva, right? He finally finds love, or we suspect that he does at the end of season two. We find out that he does, and it's immediately taken away from him. And I thought it was honestly brilliant because it's the way that grief works. It wasn't sensationalized. You don't have an overly dramatic death scene. There could have been, you know, you can think of all these sort of plot points, whether it was a horrific accident or a drawn-out illness, right? First of all, we don't know why she died. It's It's not explicitly said. It seems like maybe it was some sort of accident. But again, it's not entirely clear. I I love that. I thought it was brilliant. And I think it sets into motion a journey that Sholem hasn't quite completed. It's obviously not exactly the same. Sholem and Devor were married for a really long time. Mm -hmm. But the loss of a partner is devastating. And I think it's a chance for Akiva to repair or to sort of take the path that his father ultimately, honestly, never really does and can't really do. Um, and to see if he can do it. You know, I was thinking, I get like, you know, my Orthodox Jewish youth group um, experiences like come up, you know, sort of flow out of me, but I was thinking of something I learned, which is a Hebrew phrase, masa which actually um, so the deeds of the fathers are reflected in the children, which is actually the original context was talking about how, If you look at the book of Genesis, like Abraham goes down to Egypt, the Jewish people also go down to Egypt in the next chapter, so to speak. And I was thinking of that when I watched and, you know, it's not just a Torah phrase, it's also a sort of psychological phrase. We all are sort of living out our family's lives and what our family does. And the challenge to just see is if we can do it just a bit better. But I thought it was necessary to really set it into action. I, you know, I got some slack for this on Twitter, but like, I don't think people really like watching happy couples live happy lives. For the most part, you like it at the end, but right. it's like not super interesting. I think. So we need. But you have to have that system. struggle.
0: You right. gotta get that story, or else what? I'm just watching happy
2: people be happy. Right. That's only fun for the last five minutes of a TV show. Right.
0: That's our reward for getting through all the trauma.
2: Yes, and one thing I wanted to say about the reveal and sort of in general, something that the season brought back. Is that the first season had some magical realism, which I loved, right? There was the whole thing with the heater and Dvorora and the heater and the um DeMoth, right? The Lone Society they have for heaters, which is how he meets Ellie Sheva, who needs a space heater. And, you know, you can criticize it. I think that it has to be carefully used. But I think when John Well, it is so stunning. And it was done so well in the third season and didn't come up much in the second season. So I was really excited. To see this Jewish magical realism come back, it has a sort of Gabriel Garcia Marquez vibe that I just oh love. yes,
0: absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> So aside from Akiva's struggles this this season, so many other characters are dealing with things. Some things are because of medical issues that people are facing, but also there's so much stress generated by the overwhelming familial and society pressure our characters face. Let's look at Giti, who is one of our absolute favorite characters. We absolutely love her. She's been through so, so, so much during these three seasons. And essentially at, at this stage, in the show, all of her decisions are primarily shaped by fear of how what her family has been through before will impact the matches her children can make. Who are they going to marry? And I believe it's like the first episode where the matchmaker comes in, like reminds her to be stressed out about it, <laughs> which adds more to her um, than she really needed, frankly. She just wants to get something right as a family and do it right according to what she believes is um Expected of her. So her initial rejection of her son Yasala's dating, Shira, who is a Mizrahi Algerian university student, is a prime example of this because she seems great to us, right? Like, Shira, number one, is amazing. But to Giti, It just like puts more fear on her and it juxtaposes her situation where she's trying to do essentially fixing, fixing everything that's wrong in her family so that everything will go okay in the next generation. And she still has this resentment against Lippy for everything he did in season one. But we also see her interacting with another woman who's gone through a similar thing. And in that case... The woman actually divorces her husband, gets a get, but Giti is still in this marriage. What do you think of Giti's character evolution over the course of the show and her kind of reactionary behavior this season?
2: Two things. One, the discrimination against Sephardi or Mizrahi Jews in the Haredi world is very real. And it Mm -hmm. often comes up in these contexts and contexts of matchmaking and also in educational contexts. So I wanna just say, obviously that discrimination is wrong. Obviously it's a huge issue. I'm really glad the show tackled it, um, especially because non-Israelis will see the show. I don't think it's something that's so known outside of the Israeli context. Everything I'm gonna say after, I just wanna make clear, doesn't excuse Giti's racist behavior. Right. But I think it's a trauma response. Maybe I've just been yeah. in a lot of therapy, but Gitty refuses to face reality. She refuses to face the reality of her marriage, she refuses to face the reality of the changing world around her, of her kids doing different things. Yofala does not care that his wife is Rossi. He does not care that his wife is learn is studying fruit flies, right? I love that. Like, get me some more sorry science ladies studying at Bar-Elan, like, right? Right. So fun. So great. She's so great. Like, she's made for, uh, and obviously she's beautiful, right? She's made for the, for the audience to love. But... Giti can't, she just can't do it. And she can't do it because she can't acknowledge what Lipa did, right? He's back. So she just pretends it never happened. So one of the things that happened in the past couple of years um, between seasons is that at Brandeis, before the pandemic, we had a sort of Ladies of Schtissel event, which was really fun because Natarisken, Hadassirun, and Shira Hass came to campus. I got to hang out with uh, a Brandeis campus. I got to hang out with them for a couple of hours. It was amazing. They're amazing. But one thing Netta said really stuck with me, who plays Gitti. And she said, she thinks of Gitti and Lipa as like the Odyssey, the ancient Greek story. So, right? You think of the story as the person who leaves, right? Lipa goes on this great adventure. And she said, a lot of times if you think of feminist narrative, feminist storytelling, we want to tell stories of women who are just like who are just like Odysseus or are just like Lipa. They go on these epic journeys. They go outside their world, et cetera. But she said the story that interests her, and this is her inspiration for Gitti, is Penelope, the wife who's left behind. She's confined to her home, right, or to her neighborhood. Her world is small, but it is full of drama. And that's what she thought about when she thought about the story of Gitti. You know, she said this before season three, I think, had even been started writing. But if you think of Penelope and you think of the resentment after a husband comes home, and the trauma and that just building up inside of you, that redirects everywhere else. And I think you really, really see that with Kitty, and why she cannot deal with the world changing around her. She just can't. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of hate towards her, but I find her so sympathetic.
0: I do, too. I I understand exactly what she's trying to save everyone from and trying to avoid having other people go through. Unfortunately, she's doing it in in a way that's actually detrimental. But she's so sympathetic. You really feel for her. And when you see her also juxtaposed with this other woman who does get divorced from a similar situation, you know, you kind of feel like, is she, is she doing this because she really wants to? Is she trapped here? What does she really want? And, and I'm not sure other than people to be, you know, she wants her family to be happy. But how she goes about it is to make them profoundly unhappy.
1: <laughs> I, I, keep, I keep thinking about when she, um, when she hired this woman to work in the restaurant and the woman started yeah. talking about the parallels between their situations. She said, get out. Don't talk about my husband. Get out. Literally, this is a thought in my head. Get out, and and that was just so so telling about how how much she was she's just struggling. Rejecting
0: that as being her real narrative of her life, just total rejection of that. I do think it's interesting. I'm thinking back, Shana, to what you said about the racism that she's exhibiting here, and I I think the only other time we've seen something similar, unless I'm misremembering, is when. Shulam goes to visit his other daughter, not in this season, but who's married to a Lubavitch man. And is the Lubavitch man also Mm. Sephardi? Well,
2: in the when. So, yes, that's more, I would say, intergroup. I don't know if she's Mizrahi or not, but there's also the season in the nursing home. Right. And Bubby has this sort of romance-esque thing with someone who's Mizrahi. And plug, I wrote about this in an article about the politics of Yiddish and Shtifl, but there's this sort of very sweet and very sad scene where Raha, we miss you, Bubby, right, it, it speaks in Yiddish, and her paramour, right, is speaking in Judeo-Arabic to her. Mm-hmm. And Sholem is horrified by this, and puts a stop to it right away, basically makes it so they can't hang out anymore that also has racial undertones it's also of course there's a lot to say about the discomfort of the elderly and romance in nursing homes anyone who has worked in nursing homes or knows anyone who has knows that there is plenty of drama um, among the residents and people don't stop being people just because they are elderly with sex drives and drives for companionship etc that's part of it but there's also the racial element as well um this discrimination And I think it's hinted there as sort of a gentle example there, because there's not a real relationship, right, between Bubby and her Mizrahi paramour, whose names I'm forgetting. I'm not even sure he has a name, which is telling. We have to go back. I'd have to go back and double check. Um, But this is real. This is the next generation. And I think this is something in general, what you see in Schistel in the third season is that they are more self-aware and they are trying to take on some of the issues in Israeli Haredi society. We'll ta- I'm sure we'll talk about it later with Toby and learning how to drive and the issues of surrogacy, but they're a bit more so- self-aware about the sort of changes and wanting to present that changes than they were five years ago.
0: Yeah, let's actually go into Rukhami's story a bit, which deals with with a lot of these things. So in a series of really heartbreaking flashbacks, we see that four years ago, she and Hanina had conceived a child, but unfortunately, because of health issues, she had to get a medically required um, abortion. And she was truly devastated. And she's she's told that she can't carry a child to term, which is, you know, since season one, we know that her thing that she really wants is children. She and Hanina think about surrogacy. They have meetings. They're actually like starting to go through the process but really, Uhami wants to give birth herself. She secretly has her IUD removed without telling Hanina. And then Hanina has to struggle with discovering after she's very, very, very pregnant that she's actually very, very, very pregnant and in serious danger and has to support her despite how fearful he is in that situation. The show has been pretty frank about reproductive rights for Haredi women in this season and and the previous season where we see Giti almost going through with an abortion herself. What do you think about the way Rukhami's story and issues pertaining to Haredi women and reproductive rights are being portrayed on the show?
2: So, first of all, everything I'm going to say generally comes from an amazing book called Conceiving Agency Reproductive Authority Among Haredi Women by my lovely friend and colleague, Michal Rauscher. I cannot recommend it highly enough. She's just incredible, and the book is incredible.
0: We're going to definitely link everything you talk about in the show notes. Awesome.
2: Awesome. So, just speaking generally about reproduction in the Haredi world, is that it's really important to realize that this community, while it values having a lot of children, does not have the same social norms that we would assume let's say maybe evangelical women or Catholic women in the United States. They are not anti-abortion in all circumstances. There is some use of birth control and there is plenty of use of IVF um, and even of surrogacy as we see. But the most important point I picked up from Michal's amazing book is this idea that when Haredi women are pregnant, they are powerful, and their power comes from their pregnancy, which is really embodied, right? It's part of them. So I think we really see that with Ruhami. First of all, anyone who, you know, this is true, I would say in Israel generally, but definitely in the Haredi community, as soon as you get married within six months, a year, people are assuming that you're going to have kids and you're going to have kids soon. So Ruhami her friends, they are going to be either asking outright, or at least to themselves, what are you waiting for? What's going on? Is there a problem? Offering advice, etc. Israelis have no chill, right? We know that. And especially amongst Haredi Israeli communities, this is the expectation. Socially, life will be hard for Ruhami until she has a kid, because it's something to bond over. I remember a friend of mine who is Haredi Got married at like 22 and moved to a a Haredi neighborhood in Jerusalem for the year. And she told me that she couldn't connect with other people because everyone connected through their kids and she didn't have a kid yet. So I think it's really important to realize it's not just a personal thing. It's a social thing. It's a communal thing, et cetera. And what Michal talks about in this embodied pregnancy is that your power comes from the pregnancy and that it is an alternate source of authority, right? Saying, I know what I'm doing. And I am playing this really powerful role that no one else can play. So she, in her understanding, doesn't need to listen to the doctors, doesn't need to listen to halakha. Right? Halakha is pretty clear. She, there's no, it would be, I mean, like from a strict halakha point of view, like you should not endanger your own life to become
0: pregnant. Right. right, in in fact, when she has the the required abortion, and the you know, in the flashback, it's because halachically they have to do that. Her life takes priority, and that's like a key part of of why they did that.
2: Yeah, and this is you know, I don't recommend this, but this is Rafami taking control of the narrative and her agency, right? And the only way that she can, or the only way she thinks that she can, so she does it, and she does it by you know, going against the system. And I think I think there are ways to see this as a feminist act. I'm not saying that, you know, putting your life in danger to have a baby is a good thing. I do think is it's very easy to be like, oh, those crazy haridi women, all oh, they'll do anything to have a baby. If you look at it in a different context with slightly more sophisticated lenses, you can actually see this as an act of agency. And that's yeah. why you should all read me health book.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Link link in the description. So let's talk about another female character, a new female character this season. Akiva and baby Devorah are saved by Racheli. Now, Racheli is actually the woman who purchased those three magnificent paintings of Libby. And Akiva's really trying to get them back because he cannot emotionally part with Libby, even in painting form. But Akiva, he's going through, he's going through it. And at one point, he's so drunk, he sends someone else to pick up Devorah from daycare. And of course, they pick up the wrong baby. It's funny, except it isn't because then Devorah gets taken away by, I guess, child, child services is, child I mean,
2: services, whatever what, call it's called, services. like welfare services.
0: You right. Have like CPS, right. So they make the suggestion. Oh, you know, to get her back, you should probably get married. That shows you're in a stable relationship, and you're more likely to get your kid back. Well, lo and behold, I knew. I texted Dan the moment I heard that. I'm like, he's gonna marry Racheli, and he does. She miraculously is like, yeah, yeah, I'll you know what, I'm going to help you. I will marry you and pretend to be your wife and will actually be your wife, but act like we're really together so that they can see it's a stable situation. Give us the baby back. And that actually works. But Rochelle then reveals later on she struggles with bipolar disorder and she does have this deep seated expectation that anyone she loves will eventually walk out on her, including Akiva, who she really does come to love. And she faces such stigma for her mental health struggles. For example, Shulam has been like, oh, my God, this woman is great. She came and saved you. Let go of of Libby and, and be with Racheli. And then they have a conversation where she reveals that she does have this disorder and He immediately flips on her so fast. And she knows that. She knows it. And there's this really sad line where she says, sometimes I forget that not every story is for everyone. But thankfully, Akiva does realize how much his fake wife has become his real wife. And I, I love that he actually stands by her, rejects, uh, Shulam rejects that stigma and is with her. But while I'm watching Racheli, and and Shayna, I know you and I had a similar kind of idea. I don't know if about the same character, though. That Schissel here is creating a character that fits the paradigm of the manic pixie dream girl, which is this trope character of this amazing woman character who exists to help a sensitive male artist like understand how to appreciate life. Do you feel that Racheli fits this paradigm or is there another character in the season that you feel is the manic
2: pixie dream girl? So for Rosselli is literally manic. Um, yes. And, and I, I'm using
0: that phrase. I want I wanted to just clarify here. Yeah. The phrase manic pixie dream girl is not meant to connect with bipolar disorder. It's a right. trope character description. So I just want to clarify that I'm not referring to her as actually manic. These are two
2: different right. ideas. Right. But I think it's important to note and also sort of explain. So it's funny because as you said, we were talking about this and I thought Libby is also some sort of manic pixie dream girl. And I especially think this because I actually don't think Libby's character has developed that much. She's beautiful mm. and she's yeah. familial, literally cousin marriage. <laughs> right? cousin. It's another topic to discuss for cousin marriage. I have a friend doing a dissertation on this. You know, big year for cousin marriage. Also, if you watch Rami or cousin <laughs> interactions, let's say we'll say that. And you know, I think the two women are similar. They're both so beautiful and they both dress really well. Like, right? Like get me Libby's clothes. Get me Rafale's clothes. Oh, job, that apartment.
1: Everything. That apartment was amazing.
2: Racheli's apartment. Oh Racheli's God. job. Racheli? Racheli's apartment. Incredible. Right. They don't say exactly where it is. It seems to be like maybe in Baca or something like that. But like beautiful garden apartment in Baca, that is like living the dream. That is, you know, real estate. Jerusalem real estate porn compared to... No, but I think it's important because like compared to Gu'ula, right, where the family lives, which is small and narrow and like, you know, there are obviously wealthy families there, but it's a poor neighborhood. And then you go to Baga, right? Like it's full of light, you get into plants, you know, everyone gets into plants, which I love. It's like very pandemic of this whole season. There's a lot of plant discourse. But going back to this idea of like a manic pixie dream girl, I do think will suffers from that. I think while the female characters are often really well-developed, I do not think Akiva's love interests are as well-developed. I think we see this agree. with Ali Sheva, who I love. Yeah. <laughs> Justice for Ali Sheva. Ayelet Soar, who is such a great actress. Why, why does Akiva like them? They're pretty and mysterious. Like, okay. Also, you know, with Raheli, I think it's really important to point out that she's really wealthy. One, yeah. this allows her to do what she does, which is not a usual job for Faridi, You know, they're not a lot of Haridi women art prep collectors. And when you're wealthy in the Faridi community, and this is, you know, sort of true for any community, you can bend the rules a bit more. And then, you know, if we think about her bipolar, and again, I also, and you know, I think you alluded to this, I'm not speaking about this as diagnostic or whatever. I'm thinking about sort of the tropes that this plays. One is that, as the show does a good job of, it's something that the Faridi community really struggles with and doesn't know what to do. And if someone has taken any substances whatsoever, like any SSRIs or, you know, Prozac or that kind of thing, they're seen as damaged. So Mm -hmm. all the more so for someone who has a more serious disorder. Right, I think it's important that it's that it wasn't just like oh she's a little anxious or whatever. I do think in the karate community, while it's not perfect. There is some awareness of that. So something like bipolar, which is a real struggle, they're still not quite sure what to do with it. Now, my favorite trope ever is fake <laughs> relationships. So I am, I really like that Schistel did this. Right, shout out to all the boys I've loved before. And I think what's really interesting about this is that. It is in Rachelle's best interest to be in this relationship. She is older. She knows the men who she is probably being sent are probably terrible. This is how matchmakers work, especially in the Saudi community. And yeah, Kiva has his issues, but she figured she has her issues. And he's good looking, and he's like, you know he wants to be a good dad, right? Like sign me up. I don't blame her. And I think what the show does a good job of is when the reveal comes that she has bipolar, it's because she does something that's really clearly in sort of sort of manic episode, right? She buys these tickets to Russia without really thinking it through. But the question is, did she marry him as part of her manic episode? And the answer is, eventually, that we get is no. Yeah, yeah.
0: Th- these are questions that I had. Is she going to regret this because of that? But it, it didn't seem to be played like that. And I, I appreciated that they did not play her relationship as being entirely because of she was going through an episode. Right. And I really, I valued that
2: that choice. Right. Because I think it actually is in her, I think she realizes it's her in, in her interest and she does eventually come to love him. I liked that it wasn't, you know, we have the narrative, uh, the Yosla's narrative, which is, you know, like a teenage narrative, right? You meet this girl again, like, what do they have in common? Like, again, she's hot. She makes, well, she's into bugs. science. Right. Fair. He, but he doesn't find that out right away. That's teenage love and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I really liked that Rachel and Akiva's relationship was, I think, more mature and not just, oh, all, you know, and not just young love, hormones, et cetera. Right.
0: Right. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit later with some other characters and how well this show does show romance relationships from like a teenage years to middle age, elderly. And they they treat them as valuable stories, regardless of the age group. And I think that's really important.
1: I want to talk a little bit more about the plot line involving Dvorla and child services, which watching that was super distressing to imagine that my children could be taken from me for a mistake that Yeah, kind of major, but like everybody ended up resolving it and everybody got the right baby back. And it made me think about the relationship between child services and the Zionists, which would be the secular Israeli government and civil service, and their relationship with the Haredi community. That relationship has evolved. I remember in, I think it was season one, there was a Yom Hatzma'ut flyover and fireworks celebration and they were freaking out saying, don't Bother with the Zionists, whatever. It was kind of shocking to me because I was not aware of, of this kind of hostility or animosity that they had toward oh, Israeli civil society. So I, I much knew much that they, I knew it was. I, I knew that they weren't bestries. I knew that they had issues about the army and so forth. What are we learning as the show goes on about this? What I think is a complex relationship between this community and secular Israel.
2: Yeah. So it's definitely an evolving relationship. Sometimes you'll learn, oh, ultra-Orthodox Jews are deem they're anti-Zionist. And like, with the exception of a small group of people, that's generally not true. And you'll see that because, and especially true in Israel, um, because in Israel, you have to live in the society where you are. It's very easy to say, you know, for to be extremely anti-Zionist, let's say, when you live abroad, which is why, exactly why Nahum, who lives abroad, right, until basically this season, is anti-Zionist. And he thinks that his brother has gone soft. He thinks that his brother and his family have given up this sort of traditional anti Zionism. What I would say now is more common, again, there are radical exceptions, is what I would call a non Zionism, an A Zionism, a sort of if you can't beat them, join them. There's still definitely tensions. The child services is a tension. This is something that has come up before in Israeli society. About 10 years ago, there was a kid who was taken away from his mother. Seems like maybe the mother was starving the child. Something weird was going on. and There were riots in the Haredi community because if you think of the importance of the family unit, if the state wants to interfere in the family unit, that's a huge, huge threat. And I think that's a really interesting way to show those tensions. I do think what probably would have been a longer process was probably simplified for TV. I mean, like anywhere else, right? Of course, if you're in a situation, the teacher thought that the child was really in danger. The child could theoretically be taken away, but what's more likely was maybe she had called before. Maybe there were other instances in real life. There probably would have been a hearing and a warning. I do think it was set up because of drama. But have there been incidents like this where the community has rallied around the person who may have been mistreating the child? To prevent them from prevent the state from taking them away, 100%. Here it's pretty mild. Here it's like, oh, get married, etc. He's not really abusive. He had a bad moment, but there have been cases where it has sort of felt has seemed otherwise. It's obviously not the exact same thing here, but I think it's similar to the ultra orthodox community or any really close community relationship to abusive minors. You don't want the state to get involved because the state will destroy the system. And again, I am not. using it there are obviously horrible victims but i think you can understand why there are these fears and child services breaks up families it's what they do right it's because they need to hopefully but it's what they do so you can see why child services and welfare services is so touchy and they know that right if you notice um at one point they send a social the social worker they send to the home is clearly modern orthodox she's not crazy, yeah, but she knows how to behave around orthodox people that's very much on purpose
1: Interesting because, you know, I'm thinking now about the pandemic and the tension that arose between the ultra-Orthodox community and the Israeli government about keeping study opening and allowing for um, group services and meetings and that kind of thing. I'm just kind of, you know, I I, I kind of wish that the show could have shown us a little bit of that because we do see studying in pairs in big rooms with lots of people. And that obviously was something that Israel tried to shut down last year. Uh, And I don't, recall that went too well. Is that right? No,
2: no. So also, when I'm here, you know, I'm talking about now, I'm talking about like government responses. Among the Haredi community, obviously, there was a range of responses from being very strict to not particularly caring at all. But it's funny because my friend Sarah Hershorn, shout out if you're listening, was like, do you think Sholem would have kept his hater open during the pandemic? I think the answer is probably yes, you know, which says it's something about Jolene's character. I wonder,
0: like, unless it was somehow beneficial for him to close it, then he would have. A but, large
1: donation to the street. Right.
0: Like, I'm like, <laughs> what? Well, I thought he would keep it open, but maybe there would be a reason. Yeah, not not the, like, health and safety reason, but a different reason. The right. The, the, right.
2: There are a couple of things going on here. One is that, like, the hurry team there, as I said, have sort of made their uneasy peace. But when it seems to threaten, Jewish life. And for them, what is, and for this community, Jewish life is the, the Beit Midrash, right? the Beth Medrash, the house, the house of study and the home, the family home. And you're saying you can't do this. That's threatening. It's easy for us to be like, why don't, you know, you know, why don't you just stay home? Why don't you learn over Zoom, et cetera? And a lot of people did or learned over telephone. But if you think about from a social level, that's terrifying. There was fear of what are people going to do? not like they want people to go home and watch Netflix like I did or all 15 seasons of the Below Deck franchise. Thank you, Bravo. Right? They want the men to study. They want Shabbat meals to happen. It's the only acceptable social outlet. And it's also a huge break. I think of for me, how hard it was to stop going to friends for Friday night dinner. And I consider myself observant, but I'm definitely not ultra orthodox or paradian, any stretch of the imagination. And that was really hard for me. I miss it. I'm, you know, I'm getting back to me today. Yay. So I've been thinking about it. So you think about it on the societal level. And then you have the political level, which Stiffel obviously wants to avoid. BB's government and the part, the power of small coalition parties. The ultra orthodox parties can bring down government. The current sort of unofficial leader of the ultra Orthodox community is an elderly rabbi in his 90s. It is, think of how I say this gently, it is not entirely clear that he is fully capable of his facilities, right? Um, he is. He has spokespeople, often I think it's a nephew or a cousin who is much younger, who is, I think is honestly my age or whatnot, who translates what Rav Kanievsky is saying. I think it's pretty obvious that he's being manipulated by groups of people around him, or at least maybe not represented honestly. And Rev Kanievsky was very, or his friends or his you know, handlers, was very against shutting the yeshivas. And what Rev Kanievsky says, the parties do, to some extent. Bibi knows that. And we saw levels of unrest this summer that we haven't seen in a long time. I usually am of the most freedom are, are sort of Zionists on the inside, even if they don't wave an Israeli flag, they don't have issues with the state, et cetera. We see a lot of what we call Israelization, which is, I don't love that term, but it's there. I had my doubts this summer when I saw buses burning in the Bra. But maybe it's because of freedom, I've become sort of like others, right? Like if you think of sort of like protest in America whether it's her Jewish protests or other against the pandemic, maybe this is a sign they've actually assimilated more than we've realized.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting take on that. I do want to talk about one of the most powerful moments for me, which kind of circles back to the magic of Racheli. Mm -hmm. Earlier in the season, he tries to paint her. He can't paint her because Libby keeps showing up in the background. And to her credit, Raheli kind of knows that that's what's happening, even opens the door to let the imaginary Libby leave, which I think was pretty amazing and perceptive of that. her. But so, like, he can't paint her, he just can't. And he, he then he has this dream about Shulam burning all these paintings of Libby, like destroying Libby's life, just burning those paintings. And that makes this change for him. And he does finally paint Rhaely, and he paints her enthroned in flames, unburnt like a from Daenerys Targaryen. It's a glorious image. What did you think of that moment?
2: First of all, shout out to Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which you should all watch. It's amazing. I think there are similar things going on even though obviously the contexts are very, very different. You know, moody French-English period piece about um, steamy lesbian lovers versus, you know, Haredi relationship in 20th century Jerusalem. But what does it mean to paint someone, right? If you remember, Sholem defaces the painting of Dvorah. He doesn't like, it exposes her too much. For him, it's literal. It has like her bangs or whatever in the picture. And he doesn't like that, even though there are plenty of Haredi women who will show a little bit of hair, especially at home. But it's more of like a spiritual exposure. And again, I think you know it's this. Can Akiva overcome where his father has failed? I think we want to think the answer is yes, but the act of painting is so violent, and I really like that the sh- the show does that. Right? It's not just love and you're so beautiful. It's also violence. Even Libby says, like, oh, come on, Akiva, like, time. Like this is their wedding night. She's like, all right, guys, it's wedding night. Like, time to you know whatever and. And he's like, no, 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 just wait, just wait, just wait. There's real violence and separation in that.
0: I think there's something very interesting about, we're not going to devote too much time to this, but Akiva's ownership, I don't want to say ownership, but ownership of a woman in his mind um, Mm -hmm. or like availability to him is only in painting her. Their wedding night, he he starts unbuttoning her dress and was like, wait, let me not have sex with you. I'm going to paint you instead first. And he can't move on with Racheli, either until he paints her and i'm like what is the psychological thing with akiva he doesn't understand someone until he paints them he he like what is the sense of owning a woman's image like there's a lot of interesting questions about akiva's psychological
2: as i say there's like dozens and dozens feminist art historians right like this is where the term the male gaze from from men painting portraits of women like we use it in a lot of things now But yeah, I think all your, you know, like he, there's ownership and violence in this. The family is a place of violence, right? Hopefully it's not abuse, God forbid, but even when it's sort of more mundane and banal, especially for women, the family is a place of violence. And I think that interaction shows that.
0: So Shulam Stissel, my God, he's both the Yetzirah and the Yetzir Tove in one body. He remains so deeply problematic and deeply hilarious. And he serves as the catalyst for creating chaos everywhere in the community and in his family. So the season kicks off with a power struggle in episode one. He hits one of the students to punish them. And they're trying to oust him from the cheder for doing that because a kid had a cell phone and filmed it. So we see we see that dynamic of his power struggle to maintain control over the cheder. And we also see him trying to romance this lovely woman named Nechama, a recent widow, who has a lovely radio voice and amazingly has also won the lottery just like right then. So he's pursuing her because he likes her but also mm, money. But Nahum, who's also there, deeply depressed because he's lost both his daughter Libby and and I believe his wife passed away during that period as well. Right. He falls in love with Nahama as well. After going to a heart doctor, Shulam is told that companionship is really what he needs and I do love that his heart doctor is gay and Shulam's like yeah, I did. I absolutely love. Oh, God, I love it. Right. He was like...
1: Shulim was cool with that. He was fine with it. He,
0: he flipped for a second and then was like, all right,
1: whatever. Oh,
2: well done.
0: <laughs> and respect to him. He wasn't like, oh, I'm not coming back to you. No, that's his doctor who just happens to be gay. And I, I like that. But there is this really interesting examination of Nahum Shulam, Nachama, Issachar. We see the strength of the fact that these these people are not young, they're middle-aged or elderly, and they're having romantic relationships. They experience deep loneliness. They're trying to find companionship. I think that's really interesting that the show presents these stories as equally valid, romantically speaking, personally speaking, as the younger romances on this show. What do you think about this aspect of Stissel as like a generational examination
2: yeah so first of all i also i love 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 that these romances are not jokes they are not punchlines or obviously comic moments but they are taken just as seriously and just as important more shows should do this and should take note from that i actually think that's one of the most important things to take away we see where Gitty gets it from, you know, Shalom is stubborn, right? Shalom represents an old school view. You know, I think it's important to point out without excusing the corporal punishment, corporal punishment was really, really standard in the Haredi community. Yeah. It was only people my age, for lack of a better term, you know, who have kids who they're the first generation who are really speaking against it. And they say, because, right, it's, the WhatsApp groups. This is crucial for understanding the Haredi community. This is how you get news. I love that note. Yeah, yeah. So it's in the WhatsApp groups. The WhatsApp groups. These WhatsApp groups. Israelis will form WhatsApp groups for literally anything. Your building has a WhatsApp group. My um my roommate in Tel Aviv. The dog park where she took her dog to had a WhatsApp group. Then she was always telling me about the drama about it. So you know, your kid's gone. You're in a WhatsApp group for the grade. There's just dozens of them. My colleague at, um, Brandeis, Yukudomirski, also shout out if you're listening, somehow got on the Gabbis of Jerusalem WhatsApp group. So it's like all the people who are like running the shul, not like the rabbis, but the Gabbis, the people who just sort of like make sure services happen, et cetera. And it is wild. People share news, people share <laughs> politics, et cetera. So you can imagine this is how the social media sort of works. Um, and Shalom isn't made for that world. He's just not. And he can't handle it. And he's too proud to admit it. They've been trying to get him to retire for a long time. And this is just really, this shows how utterly not with it he is. Um, yeah, the kid was obnoxious. But you can't slap a kid and call them a mchutzaf anymore without consequences. It doesn't look good.
1: I want to talk more about Shulam. I could, I could do it all day because he's such such a fascinating yeah. Iconic for me now character. He is this oh, amazing. He's this misguided or often misguided patriarch. He is the center of this of the series in my mind, in which a lot of other okay. stories are orbiting. He is this blend of unbearable, unintentionally funny, occasionally intentionally funny, misguided, intolerant scheming. And he is so important to his family despite his flaws. For his occasional awfulness, he has this sweetness that. Makes him impossible to just fully dislike, even at his most awful. Like, okay, all right, it's Shulam. It's all right. What we talked about this a little bit, but Shulam during the pandemic would would fascinate me. I wish that we had seen that, and also sort of Shulam as as someone who also, despite himself, is evolving.
2: I think the jury is still out whether we want to see COVID actually portrayed on any television shows. I will say that while they were filming during yes. COVID, it was written before. That's one of the reasons why it took so long is because they had to wait to film. So I don't begrudge the writers um, or the show for not dealing with it. I think, you know, sort of time will tell if we feel it represented. But in preparing for this, right, we wrote, we were thinking of someone, Son of Sholem's just like amazing uh, lines, right? When life gives you lemonade. Drink it. Tell Toby to go hug that woman, right? She's a Jew. who is she? You know, yes. she's a Jewish woman who needs a hug. <laughs> she's a jewish woman and I, needs a hug i love
1: people just staring at him when he says these things like what the hell did you just say
2: what? right god like helps you make decisions right like fair, fame fame right he's so funny and i think you know problematic fave is overused but when someone's family they're your family i'm like you just you can't help but love him despite himself Dove Glickman, who plays Sholem, is really, I mean, he's been on plenty of movies and TV, but he's really a theater person. And I think you just see that so much. And that's where he became really famous. The deadpan, the physical acting, the faces that he makes. It's just
1: incredible.
0: I honestly forget that I'm watching an actor act and I'm just like, this person is hilarious and amazing and awful at the same time. He
1: brings everything. He brings everything.
0: Is he the anti-hero? The hero. What what is he? He's just I don't know. I just love him to bits. Because he does have so many, so many wisdom things he says that are profoundly wise, but he may say them accidentally, or he may mean something completely different. But that's like one of the charms of his character. But yeah, I do want to talk about some of the other very, very funny things that are yeah. in this in this season. I think the schtitzel inside a schtitzel oh. is like the show inside a show is great. Can we talk about that a little bit? Like how funny it is?
2: Yeah. I heard an interview with one of the creators, Yonohana Ndursky, who himself comes from a um, Haredi background. He talked about that the show, they felt that they needed to respond somewhat to how the sort of TV landscape had shifted. There are so many shows about ultra-Orthodox jews in israel i am actually in the process of writing an article and i keep redoing my list because there are just so many i like added another one today and the show felt they needed to sort of make a nod to that and he said also that there are these sort of fixers in the Haredi community it's Mm. a lot of black market or off the books businesses you know most people are not highly educated especially the men so they there's a lot of small businesses so a guy who brings other people who can show up for the shoot, right? Like, you're a secular Tel Aviv team coming to Israel for, you know, coming to Jerusalem for the day to shoot your big crowd scene. Like, you have no idea how to get 30 Haredi guys to show up in the background. No, but your French Shmueli is a friend of a friend, like, of your, like, one sister who became Haredi, right? They can do it for you. This is classic the Brock process.
0: I did love that he ended up not getting any caratom and he ended yeah. up getting um, like hipsters. Yeah, guys who were drinking <laughs> pour
1: over coffee and talking about how the temperature that they achieved <laughs> before they poured.
2: Yeah, so good. And, but, and um, so Johanna Thompson, that was based on a real story that he had heard. And also I will say there's another show, Shabab Nikim, which I love. I think they call it The New Black in English and it's marketing. I think it's on High Flick, one of the new like Jewish streaming series. So they had they called for people like, for extras and some of the extras then got kicked out of yeshiva for being on the show and it was just a whole thing and like the actors okay. of shabbat Mehim got together and were like we just want everyone to like get along you should let them back in yeshiva and like uh, okay i obviously am not a man in yeshiva and not but like i don't blame the rabbi for being like you can't be in the background of a tv show so i think this reflects the tensions of representation and like what it means. And of course, shout out to Jerusalem's hipster population, which is definitely there. And is definitely sometimes very confusing.
1: Came through. They came through.
2: They came through. They came
1: through.
0: (laughs) The other thing that I mean, look, Tzvi Arya is comedic gold.
2: Oh my god, I love him. All
0: the time. My god, (laughs) I rarely laugh harder. I mean, like throughout this, this season, he's super, super funny. But there's a, a plot, point in this season that was particularly amusing to me okay so toby his wife gets a car she gets first of all she gets her driver's license and then she gets a car and he's so verklempt about this because oh a woman shouldn't get a driver's license oh they can't our community can't see that we have a car parked in the neighborhood so he tries to get her to park it elsewhere but he knows secretly it actually benefits him like he likes being driven around by his wife who has a license. But in a really, really, really funny scene, she accidentally locks him in the back of the car and leaves him there all day. Then he gets super dehydrated, and when he's rescued, he can't say what actually happened to him. He can't say, it's because I was locked in the back of the car because that would admit owning a car and that his wife has a driver's license.
2: What is the Sfi the Aria? Like, what is... <laughs> I love that. I don't know if it was like a fully a bottle episode, but it was pretty close. Yeah, Um. When yeah. It focuses really on one character or one or and this part this couple. First of all, the show does a great job of showing how Haridi women are often more I don't want to use the term assimilated. Maybe we'll use a favorite, like, from English term with it. Yeah. I, I can't see my quotation. But they have to be. Like, it, it, is Toby like a raging, radical feminist? No, but, like, she wants a car. It makes her life easier. And she's the one who literally does everything. And so she gets one. And this is something that's happening in Haredi society. When many people taste middle-class life, they like it. They like the conveniences. What's happening in Haredi society is a middle, the rise of a Haredi middle class. Similar things are happening in Israeli-Palestinian society as well, israeli Arabs, And like anywhere all over the world, when people taste middle class, like having a car, having more money to do things, etc., they like it and they don't want to give it up. Now, the question is, does that affect other things? Does that mean that they have less children, for example? Does that mean their politics are different, that they've become more politically moderate? The Haredi birth rate is dropping and continues to drop. That's something important mm-hmm. to know about. As the rate of women who are educated in the Haredi world continues to rise, right? Toby mentions a friend is a lawyer that's becoming increasingly popular in Israel. Yeah. Laws is up first degree, right? You only need an undergraduate in Israel, as it is for much of the world, to be a lawyer. And They don't want to give it up and they don't like it. And it changes family dynamics. I think we see that so well. And the scene where he's locked in the car is hilarious, but it's also showing Haredi men as somewhat of children. Who do you forget in the car? Right. He doesn't know actually how to open the door. It makes sense. If you've literally never driven a car, you've maybe been in a taxi a couple of times. Who do you forget in the car? Kids. If any of you speak Hebrew, I listened to a great recap podcast by two Haredi male journalists. You need a female voice, by the way. I'm happy to to join. But um, <laughs> this is one of the things they talked about. Haredi men is infantilized, and I think you see that with Sviar Yet in that in that bottle episode,
0: I do just want to mention before we move on to the next thing. There's just like a couple other really really funny things. And what I loved is how Shulam always has to offer like a very unique beverage to whoever is visiting, like he's <laughs> talking to or visiting. Like in addition to saying, "When you know, when well, life gives you lemonade, drink it." Like he's so about beverages. But my favorite this. This season might be when he's offering uh soda with a little bit of grape juice from Kiddush on Shabbat. And <laughs> like, what? That's a drink. I was like, oh, okay. I
2: didn't even think. Of- oh. Well, so first of all, that's a spritzer. Any fruit juice with seltzer. <laughs> I guess that's so. like what, you know, my parents and my grandparents made me drink because it's too much sugar if you drink, you know, just by itself. I used to hate it. I used to think they were so mean. guess what? My favorite thing is now. I will buy a bottle Aww. of fruit juice and add a little bit of it to my seltzer. So, you know, we all become our parents. I love that. I think it just shows that Shalom is inherently loving. I'll also say in, it is always in this crappy plastic Israeli really cup. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> the ultra orthodox community has probably the highest rate of use of disposables. Um, I don't want to say in the world, but definitely it's very, very high. Israel well is some of the highest rates in the world. Yeah.
0: Toby actually says she's switching to, like, what does she say? She's like, yeah, we're trying to get rid of disposable stuff. Right. Do you remember this scene? Yes. Yeah,
2: yes. Yeah, yeah. Because she's more with it and things. And like, I was thinking about this actually over Passover where like I use disposable Tins. I don't really use them the rest of the year. And I was like, you know, I don't blame all orthodox women for using them the rest of the year. Like storage is hard. It's so much less washing. It's so much easier. You go through so much, even though it is, of course, more expensive in the long run. But yeah, I just love that life. But yeah, it, Shiloh, it just shows like he just really wants to love and be loved. This yeah. isn't a Shalom line. This is a Lifa line. But when Lipa is trying to break the news to Gitty that Shira, oh, mix up Shira, right? Shira Alef and Shira Bet is right. um, Moroccan. I think Moroccan or Algerian. She's North African, Algerian, Algerian. Um, and background, they say they like their fish spicier than we do. And I was like, I, I, I literally like when I realized what he was saying, I had to pause because I was laughing so hard. Um, <laughs> and
0: Gitty's like, What do you mean? What are you
2: trying to say? And right. he's like. Justice for Frema, um was a sort of North African fish dish that many that, Mizrahi um, Jews eat on Friday night instead of gasilta fish. I love it, even though I love gasilta fish too. That was my really nice favorite line.
1: We see the younger generation in this season a lot. Ruchemi and Hanina, Yosele and Science Shira, also known as Shira number one. In what ways are these young adults like and unlike their parents? I
2: don't want to say they're all more liberal because they're not, right? In a lot of ways, Ruhami and Hanina represent some of the more conservative streaks in the ultra-Orthodox community and in our sort of more religious, quote-unquote, or at least stricter on Jewish law than their parents are. And we see that even, you know, with the whole question of the Yeshiva shutting down and Shuli Rand, right? Shout out to Shuli Rand, who is ultra-Orthodox in the real life and plays rabbis so well on so many shows. And, you know, he won't, he, they won't take the stipend, Shira won't work, he sacrifice everything for the Torah, etc. So they're not necessarily, you know, more liberal or more progressive, but they are different. Yoslo wants the love match, so to speak, right? He wants to be with Shira Aleph, he doesn't care about the differences between them. But I still think there's continuity. Because, like, ultimately, what are they, you know, they're doing it in different ways, right? Obviously, <laughs> Anina and Ruchami's marriage was not typical, and neither was Yosef and Shira's meeting story. They ultimately want similar values, and I also think even Giti, it comes out their meeting was also not so regular as well. I think there's real continuity there, even though circumstances shift.
0: So season three is in many ways about saying goodbye. Ruchami records tapes for her future child in. Oh my in gosh. case she passes away. That
1: was devastating to oh my watch.
2: That I mean, I was so emotional. Yeah, I bawled every time that came up.
0: She makes, you know, one tape for each birthday. It's just incredible and so, so moving. And Hanina actually finds the tapes and listens to him. And that's part of, like, the thing that motivates him to support her. But in one bit, she says, I'm not gone. I'm just in the next mm-hmm. room. And that plays in to the very final sequence in the show, in the season. So after having this big fight with Akiva and Nahum, like a physical fight with Nahum, actually, and and both of them are moving out of the apartment. They just are so pissed at, at Shulam. And Akiva's moving in with Racheli. And Nahum's like, I'm out of here. And, and Shulam's kind of like, he realizes he's he's actually been so horrible that his family is leaving him. And he's like, no, 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 please just have a last seltzer, a last soda. And you know, because he has to do it with a beverage. And they sit around the table kind of silently at first. And then Shulam is trying to remember this quote. And he's thinking about it. And they're all kind of trying to help him brainstorm who said this quote that he's trying to remember.
2: From, from one of the very many heretical right. Yiddish authors. Right,
0: right. And it's it's actually a quote by Isaac Basheva Singer. And it's, the dead don't go anywhere. Everyone is here all the time and at that moment you see the three of them at the table but also the room begins to fill with all the other characters characters who have passed away on the show just everybody is sitting around eating talking interacting and then the very very final scene is ruchami has given birth to her daughter after after really touch and go bit there which was really really scary and Shira Haas looks directly into the camera. She breaks the fourth wall and just, like, breaks right into our hearts. And the, just the last five minutes of the show were just so incredibly moving. What did you think of these two companion scenes together? Is this a perfect ending? Do you want to see a season four? Would you want this to be how it's wrapped up?
2: I actually think I would be okay if there wasn't another season, although obviously if Anything that comes out, I will watch. <laughs> In terms of the scene with Shalom and the Yiddish writer, first of all, like, that's also another thing I love about Shalom is that he actually knows quite a bit about popular culture. You remember the whole thing with the comedy, Hagash Bears or the classic Israeli comedy group and the tapes. They know a bit about classical music, right? Obviously, Nahum knows more because he's European, but these are not people who know nothing. They actually know pretty much a pretty decent amount about the world going around them. And he loves Yiddish and he loves Yiddish. So he loves Yiddish literature. So like, I love him. Um, we love Yiddish. Do du- du- Yiddish on Duolingo is great. <laughs> um, yes. But you cannot understand the Haredi community, both in Israel and America, unless you think about the Holocaust. Yeah. This is a community that was almost decimated by the Holocaust entirely and pretty much rebuilt itself from scratch. There is a great book it's just called Holocaust Memory and an Ultra Orthodox Society in Israel by Michal Shaul, where she talks about the role of Holocaust survivors and Holocaust memory in this community. Because they don't commemorate like Israeli, secular Israelis tend to do, they don't, this has shifted, but they don't necessarily observe Yom HaShoah in the same way. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, it's not that they sort of don't talk about the Holocaust. That's obviously not true. It's in a different way, but I think with this family it's and you know it's not just the spouses or the parents it's everyone it's impossible not to think about the holocaust here and how this community still lives under that trauma and of course all of us do but how it's felt especially in that community so that's one thing that just really came to mind and was just so so beautiful with the weight right because these little tiny decisions is Ruchami going to use a surrogate? Is Shalom going to go after nah- um, Nahama or not? They're not just individual decisions. They're decisions with the weight of all your ancestors. It's different, but I was thinking of the scene in Fiddler where the graveyard scene with like from a Sarah and the ghosts and the things yeah. like that. It's, I don't think it's so different. I think it's like, you know, your behaviors are not your own behaviors. They're of all the people who came before you and all the people who came after you. And that's why I think these so scenes are just the scene the, the juxtaposition of the scenes with all the dead relatives who are not so dead. Right. Um, and I also love that it's a singer quote, because I think the singer was famously very cranky. <laughs> so it sort of fits into Shulam's personality. Yeah. And the sort of next generation of Ruhami, who is, I, I just think it's such a beautiful juxtaposition. And I think it's just one of the most stunning ends I've seen. Do a series last season that I think I've
0: ever seen. I totally agree with you. I I love this show, but if they ended it there, I think that was actually the perfect resolution. It gave me peace. I don't need to see further right. resolution. Like I would love to, but they can. I feel like they can put the bow on it. It's perfect.
1: Agree. Agree. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I felt that way as well.
0: Well. Dr. Shayna Weiss, thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We love having you anytime. You are so brilliant and have so many great insights into everything uh, Israeli, pop culture, Yiddish, etc. Thank you so much. Thank
2: you for having me. We'll talk to
1: you again when the American version comes out. Oh,
2: chas v'shalem la (laughs) t'il. I'm there for you, good or bad. (laughs)
0: Thank you to everyone out there for listening. Thank you to our editor, Jesse. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and review the vibe of The Tribe wherever you listen to pods. Stay safe, wear a mask, and remember that when life gives you lemonade, drink it.